Well, hey, Harvest, uh, grab a seat, grab your Bible. We're uh, going to God's Word early in our service today. Good morning, and uh, we are glad you are here shouting the name of Hosanna, and uh, we're going to continue to do that in God's Word, and you're going to kind of see here in a while why we are uh, moving things around here a little bit today. Uh, We're in Revelation chapter 19, yes, For me, that personally is a big, big deal in a number of ways. Uh, We're on our bus tour through the land of Revelation. If you're new with us, uh, we have been through some deep, deep, muddy terrain for a while. Um, Just a couple stats here to kind of get our minds going. We are now at stop 20, stop 20 of our bus tour through the land of Revelation. Uh, Some other stats for me. There have now been some 4,750 pages of commentary consumed. There have been some 650 hours of tour guide prep. That's 32 24-hour days. There have been some 37 hours of tour guide teaching. For you, that means you have invested some 20 Sunday mornings to worship, walk, and work together Uh, on these weekends, you have endured some 18 and a half hours of tour guide teaching and tears in it. Um, By the way, yes, I fully realize that equates out to 55 minutes per on average, and I apologize. (laughs) You have been, uh, one final stat, you've been 100% gracious, and you have been 100% uh, wonderful tour guests on this tour And uh, really, the reason I give the stats is sometimes we need to look at creative ways of just thinking of what the Lord has done and uh, may be continuing to do. Revelation 1, uh, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and who keep what is written in it. Um, The stats are ultimately about, I pray that the Lord would bless us by being a people that grow closer to him and our lives change as a result of how we have uh, gone through this journey together. Well, God, with that, I pause here and I pray and I ask that you and your presence of Hosanna would be here with us. And God, we would pray that this would all be about Jesus Christ revealed, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, the one who came and yet the one who is coming again and glory, and victory, Uh, God, maybe even today, that would be fantastic. God, we would pray that through this series that we would be seeing growth happening in our lives, maturity happening in our lives, that we would be growing as conquerors in Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ. I pray that would be the case, and today as we see this passage, hallelujah, we celebrate you that we do. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. Hey, actually, uh, if you have your Bibles, open and turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'd like for you to just uh, scan across it. We have here on the screen um, uh, kind of the outline so far that I've put together through the book. By the way, I want for you to know, I've got here on the floor half pages with these two screens on them. If after the service you want to come up and grab one and just keep it in your Bible, you are welcome to do that. Let me walk through here where we've been. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the source and the subject of this book. Jesus Christ revealed. John is told to write and to send this. 
Uh, he is going to see some things, and he begins in chapter 1, seeing the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. Listen, no more hippie dude, sandaled preacher, guy, poor carpenter, son Jesus. This is that one, fully resurrected, fully glorified, fully magnified. That's the Jesus Christ who is reigning today. And we saw that in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has some things to say to seven local churches. You can see those local churches in in there. In other words, what we are reading is not just highfalutin data and uh, talk. It's intended to change churches and people in churches, and that includes us as well. Chapters 4 and 5, I think, is just so foundational for the whole book. There we are. John is in the throne room of heaven. He sees the Father on the throne, uh, the four living ones, the 24 presbyteros around, uh, the glassy sea, the lightning, the thunder, the the, 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 the rainbow encircling the whole, and, and John is just blown away because he has seen the one who is on the throne and, and the heavenlies there, and then it moves at the end of that. He's, in his right hand is a scroll written on the inside and the outside, seven seals on it. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is the one who is worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and meaning to put into effect what is written on those pages that are contained there. And then chapter 5, there is one that is worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet he shows himself as the lamb, the one who was sacrificed, the one who went to the cross. He is worthy, and he comes and takes the scroll out of the Father's hand, and heaven rejoices with grand uh, sound and grand truth in it all, and that is where things begin set and moving into. Then we come into chapter 6. We have the first six uh, a seal judgments, and God is now telling how he is, uh, the seal is, seals are cracked, and God's judgment is being unleashed out of that. And then there's these, this pause, 144,000, a great multitude. And in other words, in the judgments that God has, God is going to be doing the greatest redeeming work ever. God is showing up even in his judgments. Even his judgments cause people to come to him. That's ultimately what they're about, in, if you will, in, in the desire of what the Lord would have. Then we come to the seventh seal in chapter eight, and, and then it moves into chapters nine, eight and nine, and we have the first six trumpet judgments. Again, I'm not laying them out yet. We're not in assembly mode. We are just laying them out here. Then we have another pause, chapter 10, in the beginning of 11, the angel, and he has a little scroll, as it's talked about. John has the little scroll, and he's told to eat it, and then there's two witnesses in that. Uh, again, God is going to be doing a work, and some more added information. Then the seventh trumpet of judgment comes. Then chapter 12, I think chapter 12 and chapters 4 and 5 are key in understanding the whole book of Revelation and frankly who God is and what God is doing. And in chapter 12, there we find in there the dragon and the dragon is trying to kill the child, but he cannot do that. He loses there, so he goes after the woman, the one who gives birth to the child. He loses there, so he goes after the offspring 
in the whole thing, and, and we see redemptive uh, history of the war on what's taking place. In chapter 13, uh, we find at the beginning that the dragon is standing on the edge of the sea and one foot on the land, and out of the sea comes a beast, and, and then the sea beast comes out, and then there's a land beast, uh, essentially the Antichrist and, and his prophet with that. And then chapter 14, the warrior king, so cool because chapters 12 and 13, you're kind of like, oh no, it seems like God is going to lose. And then chapter 14, John says, I saw one who was standing on Mount Zion with 144,000. That's our Lord. That's our Lord. And do not fret, do not worry, do not be afraid, those in Christ. He has it all. Even when it looks really, really bad, he's got it all. And then we move into the seven bold judgments. And again, we'll do assembly later on in the series here. Then we come into chapter 7 a few weeks ago, the fate of Babylon. Ever since Genesis 10 and 11, this war, this false religion against God has has continued out throughout uh, our known history, coming to the place that includes a spiritual war with God in all of this. And and we are told there in chapter 17 that the great prostitute, uh, that false religious system, I think as we see there in that chapter, that is going to be a one-world religious system, man, we are so set for that. It's just unbelievable. I can't can't go there. Um, and yet then chapter 12, we find that uh, the, the world governing system is going down. It's going down. And in it all, we end on that, chapter 18. It's been dark. It's been heavy. It's been hard. It's been muddy. It's been thick, at times even confusing. But where are we at now? Chapter 19. Woo! <laughs> Okay, it's a raise the roof day, friends. It's a raise the roof day. We are in verses 1 through 10. We're just going to take a little bit of time through this. A little bit is defined by me. And we, we are going through this. Here we go. Revelation 19. What a unique passage, verses 1 through 10. Four times the word hallelujah is used. What word? Hallelujah. hallelujah. The only time in the New Testament... The only time in the New Testament, and it's used here, it's stated four times. Hallel, it means praise. Uh, there are the Hallel Psalms, but Hallel praise, Yah, it, it's, it's the beginning three letters of Yahweh. Praise God is what we're really talking about here. Four times it's used. By the way, it's intriguing. This is the biblical text behind George Frederick Handel's 1741 composition putting together of the Messiah that has the, oh yeah, hallelujah chorus in it. Uh, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Say that again and again and again. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, the song declares. And the song declares, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords. Repeat, repeat, repeat. 
in the song. Listen, friends, know this. When Handel put it together, it was actually, I think, in the, in the April of 1782, uh, uh, no, 1742, I believe, that it was first performed. This was actually not a Christ has come as the incarnate Christ idea. This is the Christ has come as king to Lord idea. And here's where we are at in this. It's 19 is both a, a kind of a conclusion to what we've been on and an introduction. We're getting to the third screen uh, starting here next Sunday. Uh, we are coming. It's a conclusion and an introduction. It looks back and raises the roof. It looks forward and raises the roof. And uh, it, it's time for some raise the roof celebration. I don't know about you because I need it badly. It's been heavy. And it's time. Amen. It's time. And so this is what we're going to do. We are going to raise the roof today. All right? We're going to raise the roof here in God's word. And then we are going to raise the roof in, in singing, song, prayer, and a, a reading of God's word as well. So in order to do that, let's roll. Look back. Look forward. Let's begin by looking back. Verse 1. After this, after what? After this parenthetic pause, this interlude of chapter 17 and 18, with Babylon the Great, the great prostitute, uh, seeming to have victory but being totally taken down. By the way, looking back last Sunday, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, uh, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more. After this, I heard, looking back, what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Let's just pause there. Who comprises this great multitude? It's interesting the text doesn't tell us. Uh, the text also doesn't say that John saw them. It says that he heard what seemed to be. We don't necessarily know if John saw these peeps here uh, on what he's referring to. Who are they? Well, generally they're understood to be either two things, either saints in heaven or angelic hosts. Who do I think? Uh, frankly, I'm inclined to think angelic hosts, but I'll just say this. The text doesn't say who they are. So maybe here's the thing. Maybe it's not so much about who they are. Maybe it's actually more about what they say. Okay? Maybe it's more about what they say. And look at it. What, what do we know from the text? They are loud. This is not some Puritan, monkish kind of home. This is loud. And it's, by the way, it's a voice. It's not a sound. It's a voice. Words give thoughts. Words state truth. Noises don't necessarily do that, but words do. We also know here it's a great multitude. It's not a mini multitude. It's not less than a multitude. It's a what? A great multitude. It's in heaven, by the way. And in the form of it, they are presently actively proclaiming these declarations. What are the declarations? Here's what they are. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. And if you weren't here last Sunday or the last couple Sundays, that's chapter 17 and 18. He has judged her, who her, who has corrupted the earth with her immorality. And 
He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. A few things here, salvation and glory and power. Know this, they have always been the Lord's. They have never not been the Lord's. But what's going on here in this statement is, is you have to understand the timing of when this declaration is being made. And the timing of this declaration is after the great prostitute, after Babylon the Great, after the false spiritual attempts at replacing God, replacing what God has said. After that is no more, now it is the full and final salvation of our God. It is the full and final glory of our God. It is the full and final power of our Lord. It's not that he's at halfsies, but the reality is, is when you understand redemptive history, God has allowed Satan and evil to exist for redemptive history period of time, and there is a time that is coming where it will be no more. And the declaration of salvation and glory and power is at a whole new level in light of seeing that. By the way, with that, if you do not understand, and and this is an encouragement and a call too, if you do not understand redemptive history and what God is doing and why he is doing what he is doing, you are going to have a hard time in life because we're scratching our heads going, what in the world's going on in the world, right? God's not sitting on the throne going, oh man, never expected this. That's not not happening. Since God's got it all, and, and people who don't grasp the whole picture of redemptive history as God has it, they will not be singing the Alleluia chorus through life. Instead, they'll be singing some other words. And they ain't happy. But when we see what God has done, even if it is in martyrdom, the Hallelujah chorus can still be sung. Because we have an understanding of who God is and what he is doing. So why this great multitude of hallelujah chorus response? Well, the text tells us. Tells us and it says for because, or for, or because his judgments are true and just. How cool is that? He has just judged the great prostitute, if you will. And in this... They're giving this hallelujah chorus because he's done that. A fact of the matter, you and I do not have the ability to have 100% true and just judgment. Our whole world does not have the ability to do 100% true judgment and 100% just judgment. But he is, he is fully capable and he will. And his judgments, even if we're kind of like, but I don't like that, but that doesn't seem fair. No, know this. God's word trumps our thoughts. And the fact is, is that he, in his judgment, is 100% true and 100% right. And there will not be one person in all of history as we know it who will one day be able to stand before God and go, that was not fair. In fact, the truth of the matter is, is once the Lord is seen, that question won't even come to the lips because it will be understood. 
He is true and just, and I give that as an encouragement in these times when we go, what in the world? That's not fair. What's God doing? Hey, know this. He's true and just. Trust in who he is. And here they are celebrating that God has judged the corruption. The great prostitute judged. Her corruption judged. And it's judged by a a true and just judge. Hallelujah. Oh, by the way, in God's judgment of the corrupter and and her corruption includes the work that our God has righted the corruption. Friends, this is so cool in this. This is a big highlight for me in this. Not only will God rightly and fully judge corruption, but he will right all of corruption that has happened. He will right it. He, he will make it so that there will not be a time where we will look back and go, that's not fair. No, he's going to right it. That's super cool. I mean, that's over the top of just judging something. He has avenged it, not excessively, not out of, uh, of a wrong place of mind, of heart, of thought, but out of 100% true and 100% just place. He will avenge wrong. Hallelujah. For those who are in Christ who have been martyred, He's got it. And not only will he rightly and fairly judge the situation, he will avenge it. That's what the text says. And I just say, for those in Christ, just know this. There are times you go through life and you just go, that was so evil, that was so not fair, that was so not right. He's got it. Press on. Press on. It's not our job to avenge. He's got it. But Doug, my, 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 my name, but, 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 but Doug, my reputation, but Doug, that just wasn't fair. I'm not saying that we don't do what's right in pursuing what's right, but I am saying this when it comes right down to it. Leave it to him. And he will rightly, 100%, he will take care of it, friend. And I am sure that there are some in this room who have gone through things that I cannot even imagine. And know this He will write it. And in Christ, you will be 100% satisfied in his perfect justice. Raise the roof. Oh, by the way, our God has done it in a forever way. See verse 3, forever and ever. Friends, God's long-suffering patience 
that he has allowed this war to continue on, it will end. And it will end in a forever way. You know, God's at times brought judgment to his own people, to, to others as we see in scriptures and so forth. And, and yet, this is in a whole new way. This is like forever. It's not just for a season. It's not just for a time. It's forever. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is no joke. This is an eternal thing. Oh, by the way, in all this, remember those uh, 24 presbyteros, the four living ones over in chapter 4, Revelation 4, that are around the throne and everything going on? Look at verse 4. After they declare this, verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying what? Amen. Hallelujah. I would call this, this is the exclamation point on what was just said. Okay? These are the ones that are right around the throne. They are the, if you will, especially the four living ones, they are like worship leaders of the whole. And this great multitude makes this declaration, and the ones right around the throne, they're like, amen, hallelujah, boom. What they just said, doubled. We're with you. Full agreement. How very cool. And now another voice joins in, a further call to celebration. Verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. This is a a call, this is like an invitation. Uh, By the way, I don't think that this is an exclamation point on what was just said previously. Uh, I actually think this is a moving into what's going to be happening. I think this is an invitation. I understand some people view it differently than I do. I think they view it as more of a, a double exclamation point. I think this is calling additional people into the fold. It's like, come more, more, uh, uh, Join in on this whole thing. More raise the roof celebration to be had. And here this throne voice is calling out. It's like, hey, all you his servants, all you his doulos, you who fear him great and small, enter in, enter in and praise our God. It's a present imperative voice. It's not a please, that would be really nice. It's a command. You must join in on this. Who is this voice? Uh, some think it's Jesus Christ, and it kind of makes sense because from the throne, some, some, it's, not, it's not the Father because of what's being said here, but some think Jesus Christ. Others think it's angelic beings. Uh, other, and specifically, uh, maybe one of the 24 presbyteros, I think likely not that. Uh, maybe one of the, tw- uh, one of the four living ones. Uh, others, uh, let, so let's just think on this. Um, this, is this angels? Is this saints? Who are all these great multitude? Well, one, it says from the throne. Now, think about this. From the throne can mean sourced from the throne or direction of. Okay? Uh, John's hearing this. We don't see seeing in this being said. And so from the throne, it's like this voice comes out. So who, who could be around this throne? And, and, and also in the text, it says praise our God. Uh, Jesus is never found saying that about the Father. It's always my God, referring to my Father. Um, 
The text doesn't tell us, does it? Maybe it'll tell us a little bit in what it says. Um, I think this is likely one of the four living ones around the throne. Um, But it doesn't tell us. Who is it inviting? Well, it does tell us that. It invites doulos. But here in a little while, we're going to find out that one of, the ser- one of the angels calls him, this angel calls himself a doulos. So it could be angels. It could be those fear of great and small. It could be saints in this whole thing here. Um, I, I, I think it's likely, or it could be the first group in verse 1 that it's like, hey, great multitude, do it again. I think it's a different group, uh, but the text doesn't tell us. It just doesn't tell us, and I'm trying to do this in a way to help you as you study God's Word to be careful, all right, to be careful in this. Um, By the way, you see that little header right between verse 5 and 6? I appreciate it. This is probably like the marriage supper of the Lamb. That so gets in the way. All right, and when you read, you think that's an automatic division. In the, in the Greek text, it's not a division. And actually, verses 4 and 5 are not a full paragraph unto themselves and then a new paragraph. This is, this is all laid out. Here, here's what, Doug, what are you getting at? It's an invitation for a great multitude of whoever to add in. Maybe it's not so much about the who. Maybe it's more about what they say in light of it all. There are those who say that these are the verse 1 peeps, but I don't think you can prove that. Some say that these are the raptured saints based on what in the text here. Some say that they are saints coming out of the tribulation based on what out of the text here. Uh, Some say that these are angelic because they argue that what we're about to read, angels don't say that, uh, or, or humans, saints can't say that about themselves, and I go, why not? I'm trying to drive a point here home. Be careful as you read your Bible, not to put in your own thoughts on what's come together. Another time, that can be fine. But look at what's happening here. The thrust of chapter 19 is Babylon has fallen, a great multitude rejoices, the 24 and the 4 rejoice, someone from the throne-ish it says, join in, great multitude, and guess what happens? More join in. This is about what they say, and the context of it's just like a massive party. What do they say? Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty of thunder crying out. In other words, this is not to be read, spoken, or said like, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Not that. This master, masterous, thunderous movement of voice, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, does what? He reigns. And again, in a full and final kind of a way. He's always reigned. But this is after Babylon has fallen, he reigns like that. The Lord Almighty reigns. By the way, reigns is not a noun, it's a verb. It's an action. And by the way, it's stated in the aorist tense, not the future tense. 
Not the present tense, in the aorist tense. That means it's already happened, if you will. There, there's no question in this. No, no, no. He reigns in, in, in this point in time. He's there. He's verb reigning over it all. Alleluia. And then verses 7 and 8, the lion lamb now takes his bride. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult in a, by the way, loud roaring like waters, great multitude way being said. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. John gives us the explanation there. Let's take a look at this. This is so cool. Rejoice, exult, be overjoyed. Give him glory, raise the roof. Why? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. By the way, this is an announcement of not the actual event of. This is looking forward. By the way, looking forward to a forever marriage. There are so many things about that and so many things about marriage that we don't get. And guys, don't click out on me here, okay? Don't click out. Oh, wedding. Hey, hang in here for a bit because be encouraged with what I'm about to read to you. We need to understand a first century Jewish wedding. Listen, that's the context here. This kind of marriage with, 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 uh, with the lamb. First century Jewish wedding. There were basically three phases leading up to it and completing the Jewish wedding. The first phase was called the betrothal. The, uh, we would call that an engagement, but it had uniquenesses to it, uh, including when a man and a woman became betrothed, uh, they were legally bound together as husband and wife including they signed marriage papers at betrothal. They were legally married, but they did not live together or sleep together until after the wedding ceremony. The betrothal could not be terminated except by official legal divorce. By the way, Joseph and Mary... Mary is found out to be pregnant. Joseph learns that. The texts tell us that he is going to divorce her quietly and privately. That's why. And by the way, it was an amazing uh, uh, show of grace and how Joseph was actually handling some of the situation. But then the Lord showed up and gave him some more info and, and filled it in on it all. He didn't want to shame her but he was wanting to divorce her privately. That's why it says what it does. So the bride-to-be in the betrothal process would make her wedding dress. Do you get hearing that? She would be engaged in making her wedding dress while the groom-to-be would prepare a place for her to live. Oh, by the way, and usually most of the times that meant that the groom was building a room onto his parents' house. Oh, it's kind of like building a room onto his father's house. You hear me? Okay, like, do I have a word? Okay, let's get it rolling. Okay, she's uh, making her wedding dress, if you will. The second phase of the Jewish wedding was the ceremony, which was a presentation of the bride. By the way, ladies, get a hold of this. 
As the ceremony day drew near, uh, the bride would be readying herself for that, along with her bridesmaids. While the bride and the bridesmaids knew that the time of the ceremony was drawing near, get a load of this, they didn't know the time. (laughs) I heard someone go, (laughs) amen, sisters. I I get you on that. I mean, they didn't, the bride did not know the time. Are you hearing this? What would happen then is they would know that it's around this time, but they would not know the exact hour in which the groom would arrive. How cool is this? He would then arrive, take her away from her parents' house to the house that he had been preparing for her. When it comes time for the ceremony... The groom would go to the bride's house where she was waiting with her bridesmaids, where he would claim her for himself, and in doing that, the groom would be accompanied by his friends, as well as musicians and singers. (laughs) He would then take his bride and her bridesmaids from her parents' home and make a great procession to his father's house, the place where he'd be prepared for his bride, as they made the procession to his home with the other family members and friends who would join them for the celebration. Once they arrived at the house, the celebration and festivities would begin and oftentimes last for days. And this period would include the ceremony itself and the third phase, the marriage supper. So after the betrothal, after the presentation and ceremony, after the marriage supper, the groom and his bride would then live together forever. (laughs) Okay? I I get it, guys. It's like a wedding. No, this is the kind of thing that it's like, bam! Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Just, just, just real quick on that. Uh, this whole idea. There's no implications here of mer- meritorious works bringing salvation. None of that is being said in the text. In fact, it's a perfect balance between grace and obedient response to grace. In other words, her dress is granted to her in the text. And the dress is righteousness. She has not earned righteousness. Righteousness has been given to her. (laughs) Say it this way. She lays no claim to her beauty because she has no self-beauty. She has bestowed beauty. She has no self-beauty here in the text. She has a bestowed beauty to her. And in the bestowing of that beauty that's been given to her, she's, with that, with the righteousness that has been giving her, she's making herself ready. And I know, guys, it's hard to translate that and go, so let's make ourselves ready. (laughs) But you get it. That's what we're to be. 
It's an imputed righteousness. It's a given righteousness that the person, when they come to Christ, is clothed in. There are no works, there are no deeds of any kind that earn this clothing. Our righteousness is but filthy rags, the scripture says. But with that time when you come to Christ and drive the stake in the ground and turn the corner and say, I'm done with that, I'm moving to Christ, bestowed righteousness, imputed righteousness. And in that imputed righteousness, it's get about the, the process of getting himself and herself ready. Because I don't know when he's coming, but he's coming. And he's coming to bring his people and he's coming to have a party and a supper forever. Out of here. In there. Last verses. And the angel said to me, John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How do you know you're invited? The Bible says, all who receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Hey, you are invited. The question is, are you going to receive the invitation? How do you know if you're invited? Receive the invitation. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. By the way, I just want to finish this kind of, if you will, with that, like an exclamation point. By the way, what's been said here, not necessarily for me, but what's been said out of God's word, those are the true words of God. Not John, not the angel, not me, not you, God. Verse 10, then John gets so blown away, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Who? The angel. But the angel said to me, you must not do that, John. In fact, he said it in an imperative way. Don't do that. <laughs> I am a fellow doulos. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Underline that. By the way, in light of what's been taking place in our country here just over the last couple of days with the Pope coming in, I'm just going to say this, friends. Don't worship anybody. What's this deal with praying to people? What's this deal with having these idols? What's the deal with it? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus Christ. Alleluia. New things are coming. Friends, I want to remind you, uh, this world is not all there is. The condition and the corruption of our world is not the way it's always going to be. And it's all moving exactly where God wants it and exactly when he wants it. And there are times to look back and raise the roof. And there are times to look forward and raise the roof. And now's the time for both of those. This is usually where we sing one song and then have a you are loved and head out. We got a few more songs. And so just your body clock isn't used to this. You think we're done. So get ready to raise the roof. And seriously, church, and we can go ahead and have the worship team get ready. Seriously, church, in this, after a text like this, I would call no wimpy worship, no weak worship. No, what's the deal with that worship? 
No, not, I'm not an expressive person, worship. I, I, it's time to praise the Lord. Full out, full on. By the way, in heaven, I don't see subdued, laid back, quiet. And so we're going to take some time in song. We're going to take time in scripture. And we're going to take some time with some people coming here in a bit and pray, leading us in prayer. We're going to look back. We're going to look forward. And we are going to raise the roof and praise God. And so God, we do that now. You are worthy of every drop of our essence, every piece and part of our worship. (laughs) Lord, there is no beauty here in us. There is only bestowed beauty here. And so it's out of realizing bestowed beauty that you bring to us, it's out of that that we can rejoice. Not of who we are, what we do, how awesome we are. We're ugly, we're broken. We're sinners. We're in need. But you have conquered. And you have bestowed. And it's you who we worship. Alleluia. Amen.